0: Thank you for downloading the Engineering Commons podcast. In this episode, we talk with mechanical engineer Tim Quinn about some serious engineering topics like photonics, wave-particle duality, and the future of optical computing. But somehow, we also end up on matchbox cars, sharks with lasers, and cocaine-addicted mice. Join us, won't you, for this episode of the Engineering Commons.
1: The Engineering Commons podcast explores challenges encountered by engineers, regardless of their field or industry. Join mechanical engineer Jeff, civil engineer Adam, and electrical engineers Brian and Carmen as they discuss issues of interest to today's engineering professional. This is Episode
0: 82, Photonics, May 14, 2015. So, Carmen... Are you ready for the emergence of optical
2: computing? Uh, Well, I can't really say I know much about optical computing, but I know Google Fiber is coming to my neighborhood, so if I can get it here faster, sure.
0: What? Oh, that'd be good.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Oh, yeah. Google announced they're coming to Raleigh-Durham, so I will be waiting in line. I'm jealous. (laughs) Sorry. I'll share my pipe with you.
0: So, so that's uh, transferring uh, optical information. I don't. Is that optical computing?
2: Uh, I doubt it.
0: I mean, I, I think about we we need uh, you know electronics is the flow of electrons, and so the the uh, you know the key to that was the transistor, which we could use for, as an amplifier or a switch. And I assume there has to be something in this in the uh, in the optical region, you know, photonics, the flow of photons. Something has to act as a switch or an amplifier. And how do you amplify a photon?
2: Uh, I'm sure there's something you could do where you bombard a particle and get a cascade of photons. Hmm. Huh. Isn't that kind of how – not lasers, LEDs kind of work? There's I don't know. I'm just saying words now from my grad class. <laughs> <laughs>
0: well, so obviously, if, if we're going to have a discussion of uh, photonics – which we are going to do in this episode, we need somebody who can uh, guide us through this uh, through this area of development, and so our guest for this episode is mechanical engineer Tim Quint, a uh, design engineer working for Thor Labs in Newton, New Jersey. Tim, welcome to the engineering Commons.
3: Thanks for having me guys. I'm happy to be here. Yeah, happy to have you on
2: and
0: so do we do we get the the title right that's uh, is it design engineer?:
3: Yes, yes, okay. that's correct.
0: And for Thor Labs in – now, Thor Labs has more than one location, do they not?
3: That's correct. So, Newton is our world headquarters, but we have multiple locations both within the U.S. and worldwide.
2: Okay. Now, being Thor Labs, is it you guys in the other realm too?
3: Asgard? (laughs) Not quite, no. (laughs) So topical. So topical. (laughs)
0: Well, uh, Tim, we often ask our guests as our opening question, and uh, as we will ask you, what got you interested in, in engineering?
3: So I come from a family that does a lot of working with their hands. Um, in particular, one person who kind of got me really into an engineering mindset was my grandfather. He was a, a welder and a blacksmith and uh, actually – wrote and filed for and was granted his own patent for a uh, a tool for cutting pipe within a trench. So seeing that as a little kid and having him get out all of these patent documents that's really inspiring, you know. So I Sure. I I was always around that as a as a kid. Uh there were times where he would put me on his lap and hold a welding shield over my face and I'm sure that uh all <laughs> of the uh public health and safety people are going to come running now but it <laughs> That was a really great exposure for me. I mean, I'll always have those memories, and and those are things that really stayed with me through you know grade school and high school as I you know started to learn more and more and kind of decide what I wanted to do for the rest of my life.
0: Right. And, and so, how old were you when uh, your grandfather allowed you to try welding for the first time?
3: I was about five or six. I wasn't that old. Um, I I didn't actually. Um, it, it was uh, stick welding. I didn't actually do any controlling of um, the welding rod or anything like that, but I did learn to weld probably around age 10 or 11.
2: Okay. It's always a handy skill to have. Can't say I know it, but... It came in handy on
1: my senior design project in college, so... <laughs> Every, everybody I know that knows how to weld is glad they do. Now, are you able to do better than just stick two pieces of metal together and actually make a decent weld, or is it kind of like me where it... It, it, they'll stick together unless you kick it really
3: hard. I don't do it fairly often, so so at first they'll stick together. After doing it for about an hour or so, the <laughs> weld begins to not emphasis on begins to look <laughs> presentable, but for me it gets it done.
2: If you squint, good enough. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Right. so so Tim you you the your grandfather uh, kind of inspires you to move towards engineering and and uh, so what made you decide on uh, the field of mechanical engineering
3: again it was it was always kind of uh, mechanical systems he would be working on things like uh, the car working on his ride on lawnmower um, working with my dad around the house it's just something about gears and 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 engines and systems like that really um i th- those were the things i really didn't really enjoyed and um so i guess that's really what started to push me towards that when i was in um now this is dating myself and people are going to know how young i am but <laughs> when i was in uh, junior high school the very first lego robotics set came out mm-hmm. and i really liked uh, putting the motors together with different gear trains and coming up with and playing with you know different sized gears at the time i was learning that that's what gear ratios were right. um, and and i really identified with that type of reasoning and those types of systems and i guess that's what kind of now in in retrospect i could talk about it this way at the time i'm sure i wouldn't say the same thing but that's kind of what got me to head in this direction
0: cool and and uh you're from the New York City area, is that correct?
3: Yes, that's correct. Uh, the Unfortunately, as, as we like to remind ourselves, the forgotten borough of Staten Island. You can see <laughs> our dump from space.
0: <laughs> all right. So so when you chose uh, – you decided to head off to engineering school, you went to uh, Rutgers, which isn't too far away.
3: It, far enough to be far away, but not so far that you couldn't get home in 35 minutes. Which <laughs> <laughs> hey, all you need is that buffer zone. Just the bridge. Yep, the bridge was expensive enough. So, <laughs> so um, yeah. So I went to Rutgers, um, got my bachelor's of science in mechanical engineering, uh, did a certificate in energy systems, and minored in entrepreneurship, which was I I really personally enjoyed.
2: Nice. Hmm. Right, so you came out of there pretty well
3: rounded yeah it was what was nice about the entrepreneurship minor was that it they had made it accessible to all disciplines engineers and and every other major within Rutgers and it kind of gave you that background in a little bit of accounting a little bit of marketing um, a little bit of you know business de- development type uh classes and so now, as an engineer, as you guys know, there's oftentimes so you go to sit in with uh, with marketing, or you have to really make a case for yourself in accounting if you want to buy a a new piece of equipment or a capital investment. And I think that really helped me to have those skills right you know right out of the gate.
0: Fantastic. And and so were there uh, were there any activities that you uh, took part in during your uh, college years that kind of. Uh, led to your development of your, your engineering interests?
3: So the, for me, um, I think the biggest thing that I was glad I was a part of was uh, the Formula SAE program. Um, so for the listeners who don't know, Formula SAE is sponsored by the Society of Automotive Engineers. And university teams get together, build a half-scale, open-wheel, open-cockpit, formula-style car – Um, In the United States, they get together to compete in Michigan every year at MIS. And that was one of, if not the single greatest thing I think I could do for myself when I was at Rutgers. I learned how to machine. I learned how to uh, 3D model ahead of what the curriculum had planned for us. Mm -hmm. I learned to make engineering drawings, read engineering drawings, make parts to drawings. And what was helpful about that is when you make a drawing that's kind of crummy, and then you go to try to make the part, you say to yourself, "Oh wow, I wish I really had that dimension on here." <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
2: it's almost like getting a whole other co-op out of it. Out of oh yeah, it
3: it was really it was a great hands-on experience, a uh, really great practical experience, and I think that was um, one of the one of the best things that I could do. I did do a couple of internships, uh, worked at. Rutgers has a power plant on campus, a cogeneration plant, where they do um, electrical generation with gas turbines and then recover the waste heat to do uh, district heating for the school. Hmm. So cool. I got to work there um, in my senior year. That was that was a lot of fun and did a couple of other internships. Um, also played intramural roller hockey in the B League. So that was great uh, when you lead the league in penalty minutes in a no-checking league. <laughs> <That's>, <laughs>
2: Yeah, you still got all your teeth?
3: Fortunately, yes. Awesome. Well, you won then, no matter
2: what. <laughs> right. All right. So um,
0: now that we have a little better sense of, of your background as an engineer, Tim, maybe you can help us with the question of the hour. Uh, what is photonics?
3: So photonics is the study of light, um, mm-hmm. s- starting with Photons. Uh, the wave-particle duality of photons and what we experience as light, and not just visible light, uh, but across other parts of the electromagnetic spectrum, including um, infrared and ultraviolet. Cool. It's it has a heavy foundation in physics, obviously, as we talk about now. Right out of the gate, I'm coming into wave-particle duality. Um, but what's <laughs> what's nice about it, and what I found attractive going into photonics is that it's a, it's a beautifully broad umbrella of an industry. It covers everything from, you know, the basic sciences and foundational research to um, these really strong, you know, industrial applications. And even in some consumer products, we can find it.
1: Hmm.
0: And so before we go too deep then, to go back to my uh, opening question about electronics, because I don't know, is theres there, is there is it analogous to electronics? That is, is there a, you know, is there development of the same sort of switch as we know the transistor to be? Is there, you know, the same sort of amplification? How do you amplify a photon?
3: So to measure photons or to sense photons, uh, there are a number of ways to do it. There are these devices called photomultiplier tubes. Um, we oftentimes and what I'll frequently use in the lab are uh, CCD Cameras, uh, mm-hmm. scientific cameras. Those are photon sensing devices. As the photon hits the charge coupled device, um, it leaves its electrical footprint on the sensor, and that's you're actually sensing individual photons as they come in. Mm. Uh, there are all si- sorts of quadrant detectors and um, a broad range of semiconductor devices to help us measure and see and and um, get a handle on these photons and what they're doing. I, I got a question, and I I realize we're
2: just going to start diving in here on the deep end. <laughs> but uh, you mentioned wave-particle duality, uh, which brings up the double-slit experiment you know, uh, where, you know, you fire off an electron or a photon and you get an interference pattern on the other side of the two slits. And they say, you know, you'll still get the interference pattern even if you fire off one photon at a time. How do you know you're only firing off one photon at a time?
3: Well, that's really difficult to know if you are firing off one photon at a time mm-hmm. because is it difficult uh, to sense or difficult to generate or both so it it's both it's very difficult in my understanding at least to generate one photon but it's very it 's also very very difficult to sense just one photon mm-hmm. um, so when you look at applications like um, cameras for astronomy. Because the energy is so weak and there are so few incident photons from these you know really um, really really distant stars and clusters and galaxies, we're only getting a very very small fraction of that light, yeah, so the detectors need to be cooled you know you'll see these um these very these crazy cooling arrays with mm-hmm. all sorts of uh, you know techs on them and and heat sinks. Because a lot of times, just to sense that photon, you're only sensing that small heat signature. So any background heat can mess with the signal of the CCD. That's why we so have so many labs in the y- South Pole, right? Yeah. So it's, it's very hard to and, – and that's for a number of reasons too. But it, it's very hard to just sense one individual photon or to generate just one individual photon. Gotcha.
0: And so in the area of optical computing – are we close is it a, you know is it are we closer than, than we are with say quantum computing is you know what what's the stage of yeah. a- so
3: i in my opinion i don't i don't think we're we're very close at all it's it's very much like quantum computing we're still start, starting to you know figure out how to measure these signals how to actually perform calculations to store information in qubits or so in optical computing to use photons and you know, the the spin of photons or how the light is polarized and using that to store information, um, that's it still has a long way to go, at least a decade in my opinion.
2: Okay. So my physics is a little rusty, but you said spin of photons? I thought that was only like electrons and particles
3: or is this part of the duality could- again? I I could be wrong. I'd have to check that. <laughs> gotcha.
2: Well, I'm not I'm not <laughs> grilling you I'm just as confused as you are. <laughs> well probably not just confused as you are, but you know. Um so so is it like computing in the traditional sense like we think? Like you can in theory make you know an optical adder
3: and an optical flip flopper memory element? Yeah, y- yes very much so. But that I think now I'm not I'm not really an expert on, on optical computing or quantum computing, but my understanding is that because there are many different properties to atoms and to photons and to light that you can store different pieces of information within one, whatever they're calling as uh, a qubit. So that's a way to quantumly store this information that there's, you can store it, I guess, in different wavelengths or you can store it in the polarization of the light.
0: Cool. Well, if it's, if it's only a decade out, that's going to happen pretty quick.
3: <laughs> I, we, we, we would hope so, but I, with all things, I, you know, where I'm not really sure where the research money is going to flow. And so.
0: Mm-hmm. Right. Right. Well, it always seems that about the time that, uh, you know, I, am seeing more articles giving up on Moore's law saying we've, we've reached the end of the, uh, you know, what we can do with, with, uh, Following Moore's law and, and we seemingly keep coming up with little tricks and tweaks, and it keeps happening, so maybe you know maybe at just the right time optical computing will come to the forefront and keep it going
3: yeah we I mean I, I would hope so i uh, there was an interesting op ed in The Wall Street Journal. I want to say maybe two weeks ago about how you know we we quite haven't broken Moore's law yet. Um, but that they were, you know, they were saying that some new technology will come forward and and supplant Moore's law and continue this logarithmic growth of computing power, and that right. this, you know, the generation now that's coming, the generation of students and of engineers and um, all of these kids now who have grown up with not knowing anything other than the, or who will grow up with not knowing anything other than the, they're calling IoT or Internet of Things. Um, that they'll really have a lot of power in terms of innovation. They'll have these things that, you know, my generation and and other generations didn't have available to them.
0: Right. Well, I was just having this conversation with a, a friend uh, this past week. the uh, The mechatronics course that I teach six years ago, they were still using uh, CPLDs because there were, it was not easy to. Uh, You know, there were, the Arduino was not yet there. We didn't have that available. And so about five years ago, we switched over to the Arduino to teach the course, which made life a lot easier. And then three years ago, when I, the first time I taught the course, very few of the students knew anything about an Arduino. You know, we were introducing them to it for the first time. And last year, you know, more knew about it. Uh, This year, just about uh, more than half the students had had experience with the Arduinos uh, they were bringing in this year for the first time, they were b- bringing in vision systems, piggybacked on their Raspberry Pi. Uh, they were they were doing, you know, communications between the Raspberry Pi and the, and the Arduino, uh, modifying their own shields. We didn't really have – they only had six weeks to do their final project, so they really didn't have much time to get into, you know, designing their own shields, that kind of thing. But um, it's just even in a period of three years, I'm seeing, you know, big jumps, and we're talking about how we have to keep – uh, advancing the curriculum and and covering more material because each and every year they know they come to the course knowing more about uh about this uh mechatronic control and and the the underlying uh, microcontrollers
3: i think i think that's really exciting that's great and um early on in my in my undergraduate studies uh one of the professors had said to me it, it would be really helpful to you if you went out and not to me, but to the entire class, it would be really helpful if you went out and also got an electrical engineering degree. And a lot of us kind of looked at each other and said, "What? what we're getting a mechanical engineering degree. We're going to get another engineering degree. And now a few years later, looking back on that, it he wasn't too far off in my opinion. I right. think that there's especially, and Electronics and mechanical engineering are – I think they have a very unique relationship now mm-hmm. where there's a lot of overlap between the two fields. There's a lot of mechanical engineers who need to know programming and need to understand at least basic circuits, if not more complex electric, uh, you know, electronic systems. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there are a lot of electrical engineers who are getting into 3D printing and and uh, more, more in-depth mechanical design, in addition to thermodynamics and cooling, and all of these other things that are available to them now. So I, I, I think it's an exciting time. Yeah,
2: yeah, definitely. I wish my thermo knowledge is much higher than it is because I deal with that kind of stuff on a daily basis doing power electronics. Right,
0: and, and so I, you mentioned Tim the uh, the three D printer, and I forgot. So. On the electronic side, the students are coming in and have m- much greater knowledge, background with the with the electronics. Also with the, the uh the making, not I, I won't say that any more or less of them have say machine shop experience than they did three years ago. But there were no 3D printers uh readily available. We had a couple of very expensive ones there in the in the School of Mechanical Engineering that they could maybe get access to. But now this year they've got uh four or five you know reasonable sized uh 3d printers available to all the students and and in fact this the they get used so often that their problem is they keep breaking down they're not you know <laughs> the reliability is not yet to the point where they're up all the time 100% of the time but they get used a lot and i think that's exciting too there's a uh there's a, a generation of engineers coming along who uh even if they can't run down to the machine shop and turn something Um, they know how to send it over to the 3D printer, get something spit out to, uh, uh, to create their prototype.
3: Yeah. It's, it's interesting to see how, um, how newer engineering minds are coming from this, this culture of, like you said, not so much maybe knowing how to machine, but making and hacking and kind of, you know, forging their own way through getting things done and, you know, learning to program much in that way too. not, not as much as maybe I had learned to program or, or maybe you guys had learned to program initially it was very much like practicing music where you had to practice your scales first before you could even play a song. Yeah. Right? I mean yeah. that was that was very much the way that programming's always been presented. And more and more now it's being presented as learning through activities and um, more lab view style graphical things maybe at first for, for yo- even younger kids now, which is I think is great. Yeah.
0: Now you, you may be in an in- interesting position, Tim, uh, to tell us. So uh, one of my contentions is that all engineers are becoming more like software engineers over time. We're, you know, our interface to the world is through some API or through some software program. And so if you, even if you're a mechanical engineer, you spend time, you know, programming stuff maybe through your CAD system uh, or you're programming in MATLAB or maybe you're programming, in you know, a, a more basic language, a C or Python or something. Uh, and we've talked on in past episodes how in the electrical engineering field uh, you know these sort of interfaces are are becoming more common to do all the design work you know there's some ide uh, uh, design environment that uh, that you work through to create the chips or to create the circuitry uh, to create the analysis and so my question is in the world of optics is that the same way or are you in this? is optics in the sort of the state where we're we're not quite there yet. So you get to work a little more hands-on without having to go through the software to get uh, to the point of implementation.
3: So software is uh, like you said, it's, it's very much the way that we interact with the world now Mm -hmm. for, for pure optics and, you know, for just optic optical geometrics, understanding, you know, plano convex, um, Biconvex convex lenses to design lenses and other optical elements. They have now software for this that will – they put in uh, – the optical design engineers, the, op- the pure optics guys will put in all the different parameters that they want, maybe the focal distance, um, maybe the spot size at a certain distance, uh, different coatings, and s- the software will print out a file for them. Uh, me, myself, I find myself in CAD uh, – all day long, I'm um, 3D modeling all the time. Uh, I've actually I'm trying to learn Python now because I I see where it's going to be helpful with uh, writing macros for the CAD software, uh, for interfacing with devices. Like you said, there's all these different APIs. We do a lot of LabVIEW. Um, and even like MATLAB, I've, I've gotten back into MATLAB now with doing some heat transfer modeling for different systems. So it's very much the case in this industry as well. Maybe even more so because all of these devices are operated on software. So a lot of times the engineers need to have that familiarity with the software.
0: Interesting. It, it, and so the CAD software, are you using like a, a traditional CAD package, you know, SolidWorks or Pro-E or Yeah,
3: like we, we live in SolidWorks.
2: Okay. Cool. That, that's a nice little, uh, little segue to uh, what you do in Thor Labs.
3: <laughs> so at Thor Labs, I started out um, in our mechanics group working on, you know, more pure optomechanical design and doing new product development there. Uh, So some of these products would be things like mirror mounts, um, these kinematic mounts made of springs and adjuster screws that would hold a mirror or a lens or other optical element. Uh, Translation stages, and we're talking about like very fine translation and, you know, micro-positioners, things that can get your your translation down to microns. Yeah. um, Of incremental translation. Yeah, I've read about some of that.
2: It's pretty cool.
3: It's – when you start to look at the machining techniques that you need to do to achieve these different tolerances and um, how you in a more mechanical sense, um, you know, decouple different types of motion from each other when you're moving from one axis to another and to try to, you know, demagnify the the motion so that you can change something that's maybe moving uh, 40 microns at a time as you know, per rotation, of a screw and get that down to five microns at a time or even smaller. Um, It's a really good practical exercise in mechanical engineering and, and design of mechanisms, which I thought was really cool because we had seen, you know, our design of mechanical components classes in, in engineering in, in college. And I know a lot of my friends hadn't gone into more pure design of mechanisms type work. So I thought it was really cool where I could see a, a direct connection immediately there from uh, the schoolwork directly into what I was doing for a living.
2: Oh, that's always nice to see that connection and get a feel for it right in the field.
3: Yeah. So uh, recently, I've moved from doing that sort of work into our uh, our laser division to work in more of a systems role. Mm-hmm. Uh, I had gone on loan to them last summer. They had needed some additional manpower to work on a fiber based laser. Uh, fiber optic based laser. And I now have moved over there full time to do some mechanical design for them.
2: Nice. Did you guys mount these lasers on sharks? (laughs)
3: <laughs> for uh evil
2: supervillains
3: <laughs> i wish i would i i don't I, I i'm resisting the urge to do my my best dr evil right now but <laughs> that's all right we all know we're
2: thinking it everybody all the listeners at this time can do the air quotes <sighs> lasers <laughs> and
0: and so uh are there any interesting trends in the uh, the laser industry? I mean, the, the, the basic concept of the laser has been with us for a while. Um, what's what's the, the new exciting thing in the world of lasers?
3: So what I've seen some of the trends are, are for um, mid-infrared-based technologies. Uh, one of the big things in terms of laser sources would be uh, quantum cascade lasers. So they're a little bit of a different – Type of semiconductor laser device than your standard laser diode, which is just a um, a more traditional p-n junction where um, there's an electron hole pair and and uses the semiconductor as the gain medium. Um, I'm not gonna. I I'm not too. I'm a little fuzzy on the actual um, semiconductor science, but I know that <laughs> it, it kind of the the. Electronic energy cas- cascades through various quantum bands down from some higher energy level to a lower energy level before it finally emits. Is my understanding of quantum cascade laser. I'm sure someone out there right now is rolling their eyes at me, but yeah, I, I could refine it to a slightly less eye roll, but not
2: much. I remember just one thing from my semiconductor class. So uh, in, in your in your labs, and I know this is a little more electrical. Uh, do you guys have those those oscilloscopes that go up to like 100 gigahertz and stuff?
3: I, there are some fairly high frequency. I don't get to play with that stuff. I don't work in – there are um, – <laughs> we do have some products for uh, terahertz-based technologies, but mm-hmm. I'm not I – don't, I don't really work in the terahertz realm, so I'm not really familiar on that. Gotcha. Just knowing
2: that you have some is cool for me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think my one gigascope is pretty fancy.
1: <laughs> uh, you electrical guys and your test equipment.
2: Yeah, whatever. You got like <laughs> strain gauges and free masses you can hang off your bridge or something. I don't know. Your yeah. your rock hammer. <laughs> <laughs>
1: yeah. This magic box plugs into this magic box that plugs into this magic box, which makes this thing show up on my computer screen. <laughs> you,
2: know, you, you never get to do some dynamite to take seismic activity or anything?
1: Uh, not for a long time. No, I, I, well, I don't know if they use dynamite or or not, but... Death charges. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, no. No explosives. Wah, what, wah, what, what. Uh So, Tim,
0: do you have any examples of where this uh, this magical world of photonics is used in uh, in industry or research?
3: So, I've kind of identified a few areas we can we can talk about. And what I think is really great about photonics is how broadly applicable it is. There are um, different applications for, I think, most, if not all of the engineering disciplines. So being a mechanical guy myself, one of the first things I want to touch on is um, quality control and metrology of machined parts. Um, so now, okay, all yeah, of these but- newer... Imaging – go in, ahead. What
0: before you get too deep, uh, you're going to have to define uh, metrology for those so, of our <laughs>
3: listeners who might not know. Isn't that the weather? <laughs> so metrology uh, is is the science and and going through of measuring various properties of a part, whether it's the part's physical dimensions, whether it is the surface finish um, and other properties. Maybe defined in drawings are not explicitly defined uh, properties of a finished good.
0: Right. So now metrology, I know, to, you know, things like uh, surface finish and, you know, the waviness you've got, it, it covers that kind of stuff. Does it worry at all about things like, you know, uh, mechanical properties or is, it, or is it just worried, you know, hardness, that kind of stuff? Or is it just worried about the profile?
3: I would consider metrology to also include, um, you know, hardness measurements and things like that. Okay. Um, in in this case, I'm going to be talking more along the lines of uh, just more dimensional measurements and, like you said, surface finish properties. Okay. So so go
0: ahead. So I, I interrupted you. I apologize. I, that, Continue. That's on.
3: okay. So. Previously, um, a metrology department in a machine shop or uh, a quality control group would measure parts physically. They would um, touch the machined part to a, uh, a block that they knew – a gauge block, something that they knew was flat. Um, or they would use a device like caliper or um, a micrometer to measure some dimension of some physical property of this part. Sure. Using light and optics and various detectors, uh, they can now take non-contact measurements. So you can place a part um, on some sort of optical um, imaging platform Mm -hmm. and using cameras, using light, you can check the dimensions of those parts. You can check the straightness of various surfaces, the flatness. Um, without having to manipulate the part the measurements become a lot quicker and more accurate
0: right and and is this most so you mentioned cameras is how is this mostly is it done with a, a whole variety of different methods or is it mostly reflected angle or
3: so it's it's a variety of different methods some of it is used actually using a ccd camera and there's image processing software that will look at like you said, reflected angles and how the profile of the surface appears Mm -hmm. in the software, some Mm -hmm. of it will use um, a little bit more simple methods like interferometry. So it will scan across the face of a part um, with a light source, and that light source will be one arm of, say, uh, what's called a Michelson interferometer. And just like you were talking about the double slit experiment before where you would see – Um, constructive or destructive interference as the distance the light has to travel increases or decreases the number of fringes or the these interference fringes move so using a uh, a more simple detector that's not so much like a uh, a ccd but something that can just see lines Mm -hmm. um, instead of colors and and other higher fidelity type images you can count these interference fringes in determine if that surface is moving away from the source or towards the source right and your um, your resolution here is restricted by what the wavelength of the light is so the shorter the wavelength um, the the higher the resolution of the of the system
0: okay and so what kind of resolution is you know anything's possible if you spend NASA like money but but For you know, with reasonable cost, what kind of resolutions are possible these
3: days? Microns. So, if you look at a a pair of interference fringes being um, the wavelength of the light being used multiplied by two, Mm -hmm. um, at uh, your typical red laser would be 633 nanometers or 634 or 635 nanometers, so somewhere in the neighborhood of one micron, 1.2 microns.
2: Okay. That's pretty good. Yeah. I'm impressed.
3: So that's, you know, one mechanical application. Uh, something else I'm personally really excited about going back to 3D printing before is uh, newer based laser manufacturing methods. So both additive and ablative, you have, you know, laser cutting more people are familiar with. But they have now the metal equivalent of 3D printing called uh DMLS or direct metal laser sintering where a, a high, high power, tightly focused laser beam will, um, sinter or briefly melt together small, uh, particles of a metal and print Mm -hmm. this up in layers, which is really cool. Um, I've seen videos where they've made, uh, rear dropouts for bicycles before and, um, other components. It's from my understanding, it's, um, really applicable right now in industries like aerospace and uh, medical devices.
0: Right. And when, so when they do this during during the centering process, uh, how wide – it It would seem to me that you have to deliver a lot of energy to actually melt the the, the powder or the centered or the material that you're going to center. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm sorry. Are we saying center or sinter? Center,
3: sinter.
0: S-I-N-T-E-R. Okay. Cool. Just clarifying. So how big is the how big is the beam that's being applied here because the bigger the beam obviously the more energy you have to deliver to to uh, um, to, to keep the process going
3: yeah so I'm guessing it has to be sub millimeter spot size is my okay. guess um, there there are very very powerful lasers um, multiple kilowatts um, yes a lot of times they'll use um, fiber lasers are very um, robust, so they'll actually use a a doped um, piece of fiber, a length of fiber that has had rare earth ions added to it, and they they'll use that to optically pump the laser and increase the power. Mm-hmm. And l- like I said, I'm I'm assuming it has to be sub millimeter spot size. I'm not familiar enough that I can you know speak to the size of the um, the spot where the laser is actually focused.
0: Right. So this gives some. Uh- it has the potential from some very interesting new applications, but the old applications, this sort of runs into the same problem that 3d printers do that it's, you can't really scale it up for doing, you know, high volume because it just takes too long.
3: Yes. Yes. And it's for the size is somewhat expensive.
0: Yeah. But if, but if you need it and nothing else will do it, 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 it's there.
3: It's there. And I, I, my understanding is that this is very useful with more non-traditional materials, um, titanium and, and alloys thereof, mm-hmm. and uh, for very complex profiles that you might find in things like a, a hip replacement or in a um, turbine compressor blade.
0: Yeah. And are you familiar with powdered metal manufacturing. Yes. And, um, and, and I, can can you c- kind of compare this to the traditional powdered meth- uh, metal uh, processing?
3: My, my guess is that I think this would have a much smaller pore size than mm-hmm. powdered metal. My experience with powdered metal has always been that the pores are – depending on the type of powder metal you use and the sintering method and temperature. That I've always encountered a little bit of an issue with some sometimes having larger pores in right. that powdered metal,
0: right? Uh, and, by, I, and by pores we mean you've got you've got the powder and there's going to be a certain amount of gaps even after you've you've heated it up and melted things together, and so there's yeah, a certain it, amount of porosity left behind.
3: Mm-hmm. There there are always going to be those very small air gaps. If you look at um the the math to calculate a, how many balls can you pack into a ball pit, for example, there's that packing factor. You'll never have a total void-free space.
0: Right, um, and let you melt it down completely.
3: Yes. So I can see where um laser sintering might have fewer issues with that, which will help with things like surface finish, for example.
0: Sure. All right, so we we've covered a couple of applications in the world of mechanical engineering which, you know, floats my boat. Uh anything in the world of civil engineering that's going to grab Adam's attention?
3: So Something else that's really exciting are these uh fiber optical fiber based sensors that use what are called fiber brag gratings um, and these are used to do things such as monitor uh bridge integrity um, based on the it's essentially an optical strain gauge so <laughs> a a fiber brag grating is a impurity in the fiber that will either pass through, or reflect various wavelengths. The properties of these gratings um, as a fiber is placed under stress and strain change and will reflect different wavelengths. So if you are passing a more uh, broadband, what we would consider broadband source, so it covers a a large uh, swath of wavelength, um, you can see the change in the wavelengths that are uh, reflected back to you, and use that to measure the um, the load on the bridge. Hmm,
1: well, that's interesting. <laughs>
3: <laughs> I don't know. I'm not a bridge guy. <laughs> Sorry, but that's uh, and I'm sure there's there's other applications for this in 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 roadways and and the like. I'm I'm not familiar with that.
1: Yeah, I, I'm um I'm I'm sure there are, uh, <laughs> there are plenty of plenty of applications. Uh, especially, I could see it being very useful in uh, in research where you're trying to you know miniaturize something and and not have to to do a, a several hundred foot plus long bridge uh, and you're trying to you know figure out those properties on a much smaller scale without having to build a full bridge because mm-hmm. uh, they're not cheap
2: saying you guys play with model trains in the office.
1: I don't. Um we may have some matchbox cars floating around. Oh, uh, um, okay. <laughs> so
2: somewhere you have plans for like a freeway interchange loop to loop,
1: right? Um prob maybe.
2: You, you can either confirm or deny <laughs> that. I see. I
1: see. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Keep it on the
2: I, I see. That's cool. It's a good thing no one listens to this podcast. Absolutely,
0: absolutely. <laughs> yes, your yes. secret's safe. <laughs> We're good. Um, so, so, uh, so we've we've got mechanical and civil. Is there anything in the uh, electrical domain that uh, would make Carmen happy?
3: So uh, I'm sure Carmen is aware of the the issues with blue LEDs and the and getting the color blue to emit in general. Yes, it's um, uh,
2: one of the hardest colors for reasons that elude me. <laughs>
3: uh i um, again that semiconductor science that's more of a, a black art to me <laughs> mm-hmm. agreed but um there was a uh, last year the Nobel Prize uh one of the Nobel Prizes was awarded to um the group that helped to develop uh, the blue LED and now as they develop better and um more robust blue LEDs these uh the OLED displays in your televisions will get Uh, more cost effective and have longer lifetimes that's my understanding is the blue pixels and the um, the blue leds are generally the first to go Um, maybe we can have some some better light sources for our homes Mm -hmm. so i led technology is very big Uh, going back to again those quantum cascade lasers that's going to be a big a big technology going forward but yeah. It's I, a lot of a lot of that semiconductor science. Yeah,
2: and also not just in the semiconductors themselves but in in making the semiconductors. I know uh lithography is very big on photonics. Yes. Um for a while I can't remember what the barrier was. I'll say I'll say 1 micron because I'm just picking a number, but they they were worried about the wavelengths of the light being too big for the masks all of a sudden and they figured out sub wavelength micro uh, lithography or something along those lines
3: and can imagine there are some photonics guys on that team. I'm sure there are. I know um photonic based systems are also uh very widely used in again, metrology, but for the semiconductor industry to measure um all of their gates and channels and make sure that things are the right size that they're supposed to be.
2: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Definitely. And then you got your uh your scanning electron microscopes and all that jazz too. Mm-hmm.
0: So, and I ask this completely out of ignorance. I spent a lot of my life asking questions <laughs> completely out of ignorance. So, the, I know that, that, you know, the, with each generation of, of processor, the cost of these building these fabs goes up and up and up. Is the same thing true when you're building these, uh, optical, you know, semiconductor components? Are, are those fabs just as expensive or is it cheaper to get into the, uh, into the LED industry,
3: my understanding is that it's a a little bit cheaper to get into the LED industry. I don't, I don't see that there. You're not needing to get pack more and more um, integrated circuits into the same area. Mm-hmm. Um, you're more concerned with the lifetime and longevity of the product, okay. um, how stable it is at a specific wavelength, uh, making sure that. The small slit on the chip that acts as a waveguide to get the LED to emit um, in a coherent fashion is right. is the proper size. So I think the barrier to entry would be much lower for something like LED semiconductor growth as opposed to going into the computing world.
2: Yeah, and I remember too from the uh, – this is an old episode of the Amp Hour when they interviewed the uh, one vice president of Cree – uh, mm-hmm. LEDs. He said they made use of um, the old, you know, two, one, two, maybe even more generations back semiconductor equipment that, you know, all the big fabs cast away as they moved on to the new process nodes. So they're hmm. selling that just to recoup some of their losses and, you know, you can buy okay. it for cheap then.
1: Okay. So, so does this mean I'm going to continue to see cheaper and cheaper LED prices?
3: We, we Probably, should hope yeah. so. Yeah. Yes. I, I would assume so. <laughs> <laughs>
0: I I think I got twenty bucks in my uh, in my drawer downstairs. How far will that get me towards a LED fab?
2: Uh, I couldn't even tell you. Yeah, <laughs> I am not really <laughs> sure. Yeah. <laughs> well, the, the, I think
0: I think twenty bucks will actually buy me a LED light bulb now, which it wouldn't three years ago. If you but. catch
2: them on sale, oh, oh, yeah. you get two or three. Only one though. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. IKEA's actually IKEA's got some LED bulbs that are pretty cheap, and I don't know. They're late in my room right now. I'm pretty happy with them.
1: Yeah. You could maybe even get four with the rebates. Ooh, that's a good point.
2: Yeah. Or once in a while, the power company will give uh, give uh, you know discounts on LEDs and everything.
0: Right. Oh, oh yeah. Right. So uh, are there are there any other areas, Tim, that uh, have benefited from this world of photonics?
3: So um, one thing that's really interesting is you know la- all these laser based eye surgeries we hear about. Uh, lasik and things like that right those actually use uh, lasers not only to change the shape of the lens on the eye um, by heating it and cooling it but they also use lasers to make the uh, initial slit in the cornea so that they can get pad the light easily pass through into the the deeper regions of the eye right uh, they use these ultrafast lasers with pulses that are measured um, in femtoseconds, so ten to the negative fifteenth seconds, which is I, really really fast. I think that's uh, <laughs> I think that's great. That's really exciting that we can uh, make a pulse of light that only lasts ten femtoseconds.
0: Right, and and so more more impressive is the fact you can measure it.
3: <laughs> yeah, I, a lot of those measurements become second and third order measurements, measurements by inference, but. Right. Again, the the technology I'm not overly familiar with, but right.
0: So uh, now, so you know, LASIK surgery has been around for a while. Is this is the the develop the development of lasers must be continuing all the time. How, is, yes. Is it is it radically different from what it was, say, ten years ago?
3: Um, femtosecond lasers are more common now. Um, that's more of a relatively newer development. Is actually making some of those. Uh, initial incisions using lasers right uh, but the laser technology is getting a little bit more robust there's longer lifetimes and it's it's much much more stable than it had been previously more widely available and definitely a little bit cheaper than it had been
0: hmm. so i wonder if they, they they still have to keep your eye open i mean femtosecond that's pretty pretty quick they can do it pretty between, quick yeah. they can do it between blinks i would think
3: <laughs> yes they, they they do yeah a
2: couple billion between blinks <laughs> <laughs> cool
3: so um some other uses for these these ultra fast lasers are uh things like two photon excitation fluorescence microscopy that's a, a mouthful no kid so This is a form of microscopy that is used a lot during in vivo experiments to see how different uh, cells, different proteins will interact within a system. And you can think of that ultra fast laser like being a flash bulb. Mm -hmm. As that pulse hits a um, a sample that has been doped with fluorophores, so uh, particles that excite when there are incident photons and Mm -hmm. then relax again, emitting light for imaging. Um, As those ultra fast pulses come through, they act sort of like a flesh bulb and allow us to image these different interactions between um, organisms, between cells. And this is a, this is a really popular or it's rapidly becoming popular imaging technique in biology and chemistry.
0: Right, like what? What kind of scale are we looking at there? I mean, what kind of again? What kind of resolution are we looking at?
3: Um, we're looking at individual individual cells, but within cells, we're looking at um, interactions within the nucleus. Like oh, that type wow. of a, <laughs> yeah, that type of a scale. That's
0: okay. Pretty crazy. <clears throat> okay, and, and I I notice here on on the list you've got optogenetics. What is yes. that related?
3: So. Optogenetics is not so much an imaging technique as it is more of a manipulation technique mm. where we can use light to actually turn uh, neural pathways on and off. Um, one <laughs> study – it's pretty crazy. One study that has actually been popularized by the media um, that – it came out a couple of years ago where that researchers were able to take a mouse – Um, give it small doses of cocaine and get it addicted to the drug and then using light that was directed into the mouse's brain through a a small implanted device to actually turn the addiction pathway on and off. Wow. (laughs) So if you can imagine, that's pretty promising, I think, in terms of, (laughs) you know, medical treatments and treating addiction, maybe various mental disorders. But i I think we have a long way to go to understand the brain
0: yeah and and so I apologize I may be asking you to play medical doctor here or something, so what I always think of of communications between cells as being kind of electrical charges, so what is light doing that's different
3: so my understanding of this and it's not very in depth again, mechanical engineer and not you know not uh, neuroscientist but
0: <laughs> we allow, we allow hand waving that's okay,
3: okay. Um, There are some proteins that exist within these pathways that Mm -hmm. have been genetically modified to react to light. Okay. And so um, these proteins will either block the electrical signal or bond to sites where other signaling proteins may want to come and tell a neuron to uh, perform some sort of action or task. Sure, And so by – Hitting these proteins with light, the proteins say, oh, let me go attach to this neuron and not let anything else try to stimulate it. And then turning the light off, they release and go back to, I guess, just hanging out. Okay.
2: (laughs) I'd still like to see the grant paperwork for these. We want to get a mouse uh, hooked on cocaine and then cure it with a flashlight. (laughs) (laughs) Funding over here. (laughs) So, it,
0: it, with all these amazing applications, uh, what does Thor Labs do? I mean, how how is Thor Labs contributing to these? Is it is it just test equipment? Is it scientific equipment? What what does your company do?
3: So, what we like to say is that we make photonics tools. We make all of the products that um, researchers and people in industry use to make these things on paper become a reality. Mm-hmm. Uh, we make everything from light sources to individual optics, um, mounts to manipulate the, uh, the optics and get beams of light to do exactly what you want. We make products that people use in things like optogenetics. We make these small, what are called uh, cannula that a- are actually implanted into uh, the skull of the mouse. And that's where the terminus of the fiber carrying this specific wavelength of light is and allows the researcher to get into the brain of the mouse and direct that light in there. So we make tools. We help the scientists push the boundary and get to the cutting edge. Neat. Yeah. Kind of sounds like you guys are uh, like one of the IC manufacturers.
2: If you know you want to relate it back into the day of the transistor revolution, you know you're you're making the ICs to allow everybody else to advance the other industries in a way.
3: Yeah, that's actually a that's a really good example. That's how we like to think of ourselves. Yeah. That's that's really cool. <laughs> so, you know, we we talked
2: about all these uh crazy crazy uses for photonics from, you know, curing cocaine addictions in mice to uh, you know, micrometer based movement and everything. But what what about the average Joe? Why why should he care about photonics, uh, you
3: know, how how is it going to impact our everyday life, you know, somewhat near term? So, going back to um, what you guys were talking about before with Google Fiber, um, you can actually thank Photonics for your high-speed internet with optical communication fibers. Hmm. Is that just Uh, your
2: regular cable-based internet, too? Or is that um, uh, you have to
3: have a fiber link? So, you don't necessarily have to have a fiber link. A lot of uh, the cable companies run on a fiber backbone. So, instead of... Um, For a company like Google Fiber or maybe for Verizon with their Fios um, product, Uh instead of coming fiber to the home, what they do is they have fiber go to a node on the street somewhere. And then from that node, they distribute via copper to the houses on the street or for that span of three blocks or however their network is laid out. But somewhere in that network is – optical fiber, allowing the cable provider or the internet provider to multiplex all of these different signals all at once and give you these uh, really high bandwidth connections. Nice. Um, Another really good example would be polarized sunglasses. Um, It's an atomic scale version of the wire grid polarizer experiment that you're taught about in physics where – um, depending on the direction of that wire grid, it will block light with that same polarization state, and that's what helps to you know dim the sunlight that's incident on the glasses and help protect your eyes. So photonics is on your sunglasses. Hmm. Very and, cool. And um, yeah, people maybe people who have um have recently bought one of these uh, fitness bands with heart rate capabilities, like myself.
2: Oh, I just read about um, this uh, looking at our notes. The Apple Watch does this, what you're going to talk about.
3: Yeah, the Apple Watch does this. I have um, a Fitbit, Fitbit brand um, product that does this. But there's uh, two green LEDs and a little square photodiode. And it measures the change in intensity of the light as it passes into your skin to determine your heart rate, the pulses of your heart. So uh, that technique's actually called reflection photophlesmography. Again, that's Good another mouthful, year. I guess. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, there's a there's a myriad of applications that I think people uh will use these products and maybe people who aren't familiar with the technology don't necessarily even realize that it's there, but it's it's photonics.
0: Wow. <laughs> now, Tim, you may be able to provide some insight. I in the last day or two I've been reading that. Uh, Apple has admitted that with their watch they're having certain problems doing this analysis with people that have tattoos in this area. Is this you know, is this related to this uh uh this ability to get the uh, the, the light into the skin?
3: Yeah, yeah. So that's exactly right. Um what what makes the things that we see around us um the color that they are mm-hmm. is due to the wavelengths of light that they absorb. Sure. Or reflect so, uh, depending on the colors that are in the tattoos, they may be reflecting um, or absorbing whatever wavelength uh, Apple is using, um, and that would definitely read uh, lead to uh, measurement error. Right. So, I, I can absolutely see that being an issue. Something until you believe it or not, until you mentioned it, I hadn't even thought about oh, well, what about people with tattoos? <laughs> <laughs>
0: Well, apparently Apple had not thought quite enough about that.
2: (laughs) So, uh, is there like an IEEE for photonics or does the IEEE do photonics work?
3: So, um, the branch of, or the, the trade group that would deal mostly with, um, photonics, um, it's more of optics and physics. It's called SPIE. Um. But to get involved and to read more, um, there are lots of publications online. You can read uh, Laser Focus World is a a really good uh, trade publication that people will read, Um, or Photonics Spectra is another one. That's a magazine that's mostly distributed online now at photonics.com. But I think the SPIE is our our big trade group. Okay, it's the uh, the International Society for Optics and photonics.
0: Cool. Yeah, so now, Tim, when you uh, got into this industry, were, were you looking in particular to hire on with a company that was doing photonics, or did Thor Labs just happen to come along during the interview process and you said, gee, that looks like a cool company to work for?
3: It would be the latter. I okay. actually, <laughs> um, with my involvement in energy systems in school and um, working on Formula SAE, I had always thought, oh, maybe I would, you know, work in a power plant, or I would want to do automobile chassis design, or something like that. Mm-hmm. But Thorlabs kind of, I that kind of found me. I didn't really go looking for Thorlabs, and when I saw the opportunity, and I started to research the company a little bit more, um, the, here was an industry I had never really heard of, never really thought about, and the things that they were doing, and and how how they presented themselves as this. Um, this company providing tools for, for all of these people doing cutting-edge research. That mm-hmm. was something I, I felt like I really wanted to be a part of. I started to get excited about it, and I'm I'm really happy that I kind of – it's a very happy accident that I, I wound up in photonics. <laughs> <laughs> well,
0: that's great. That's great. It, now, you mentioned something about energy systems. Uh, is, does Thor Labs do anything that's at all related to solar energy?
3: So we don't do anything – Specifically, ourselves related to solar energy. Sure, um, I can see where researchers may um, buy our products to test various um, solar cell chemistries. They might have some sort of lab set up where they're either testing chemistries or using this to uh, develop using light to help them develop new, novel chemistries for solar cells. But no, we mm-hmm. we don't ourselves um, provide any solar sell products.
0: Okay. And, and so this is a question again, out of ignorance and completely out of the blue, but so obviously uh, a lot of the work you do are using uh, lasers as your energy source, as your light source. Uh, but we've also got the sun as a common light sources. Are there any times where it makes sense using solar energy over using laser as a, as light source?
3: So, not necessarily so much um solar energy, but we do uh we do sell and in experiments often we'll use broadband sources um, <clears throat> maybe a a glow bar that will emit not both not just visible light but mm-hmm. uh, across the entire infrared spectrum as you as you heat it up and it begins to glow from the heat um, also various white light sources that, again, broadband, they'll cover the entire visible spectrum. And these are useful in applications like um, spectroscopy, where you want to measure the absorption of light across a number of wavelengths in a gas or um, in some sort of sample to determine its constituents. Mm -hmm. So for car exhaust, uh, there are a number of different components in car exhaust that are absorptive from the near-infrared, you know, somewhere around, you know, 900-ish nanometers all the way through four or five micron uh, wavelength light. So you would want something that will emit light throughout that entire spectrum. So you'd want to use something that was like the sun – you know, a, a white light light bulb or something like one of these glow bars where you heat it up a piece of metal and get it to glow really bright red and will actually emit these wavelengths that we can't see. Sure. And th- those would be um, not focused sources, what we would call incoherent sources.
0: Okay.
1: Now, Tim, earlier you mentioned something about fiber optic lasers. Sure. Now, do these have anything to do with like fiber optic communications or is it Completely
3: so th- there are um, some examples of fiber optic lasers found in fiber optic communications. You, <clears throat> as you have a signal that gets passed from node to node to node, uh, there is some loss within the fiber and it needs to be amplified. So they'll take um, in this system, you'll take a, a signal, pass it through a fiber that is uh, doped with these rare earth ions And then use a pump signal, uh, a different wavelength, usually that's lower in wavelength, a shorter wavelength, and thus has higher energy. Uh, That higher energy wavelength will excite all of these uh, rare earth ions, get them to move to an excited energy state, get the electrons to move outward into these um, higher energy shells. And when they relax back into their normal state, um, they'll have what's called... um, Stimulated emission, which is one of the principles of lasers, you'll have your pump, your um, your signal your, from the optical fiber, and as it passes the atom getting ready to relax, uh, it'll pick up another photon at the same wavelength, and that's how gain works in lasers. A little hard to follow, I know. I don't really have any diagrams <laughs> here. No,
1: no, that, that, that's fine. So you're not building me cheaper, cheaper fiber optic laser. Uh, well. You're not building any cheaper optics for fiber optic communications, but it might get there. Yes. Well, Tim, uh,
0: we're, we're, uh, we've run over the uh, hour mark. So we should probably think about wrapping things up and, and uh, letting you get on with your evening. Um, So if our listeners are interested in this, uh, in this area of uh, photonics, or do you have any advice on how they might get into the photonics industry?
3: So, I would definitely advise the listeners to um, check out – again, SPIE is the Optics and Photonics Trade Group uh, to go on sites like photonics.com or laserfocusworld.com to read a little bit more. And if you're looking into an undergraduate program or even if you've completed your undergraduate, you're working and you're looking for a distance learning program maybe, uh, one university that – is larger in terms of its um, photonics-based programs would be the University of Arizona. They have a, uh, a really, really big uh, optics and photonics program, and it's becoming more and more prevalent. It wasn't really something where schools would have a a photonics department, sure, um, but. More and more now, um, universities are starting to pour more money into that research. Uh, like I said, University of Arizona is a big one. And then uh, maybe in the show notes, we can link to an article about uh, how to get started in photonics, if that's what you're looking to get into.
0: Yeah, we'd be happy to put that in the uh, notes. So if uh, our listeners are interested in uh, in uh, contacting you, is there any contact uh, information that we can pass along to them, Tim?
3: Sure. So um, – I'm not very big on Twitter, but you can find me via email. Um, you can catch me at Thorlebs, and it's uh, Tquin, T-Q-U-I-N-N, and that's at T H O R L A B S T-H-O-R-L-A-B-S.com. Okay. And uh, if they don't want to reach me there, if they want to get me on my personal email, uh, they're more than welcome. And that's Timothy, uh, T-I-M-O-T-H-Y, dot Quinn, Q-U-I-N-N dot junior J-R at gmail and they can find me on LinkedIn
0: fantastic fantastic well Tim thank you so very very much for uh, joining us and uh, uh, sharing some information about this uh, this world of photonics that obviously we didn't know too much about going into and obviously you know quite a bit about
3: hey thanks for having me Um, this is a, a really exciting field to me and I can definitely see us learning more about photonics and it coming into the mainstream in the next 5, 10, and 20 years. So keep an eye out for it, guys. Sounds good. And after this podcast,
1: it's pretty interesting to me, too. Yeah, I for sure learned a few things.
0: All right. Well, thank you, Tim. And uh, we appreciate your coming on the Engineering Commons. And uh, we hope you have a great evening.
3: Thanks. You guys, too. Enjoy the rest of your night. All right. Take it easy, Tim. Good night. Good night.
1: The Engineering Commons is produced in affiliation with Big Beacon, a social movement for transforming engineering education, located on the web at bigbeacon.org. For more information about the podcast you've just heard, please visit theengineeringcommons.com. Our theme music is by Paul Stevenson.